On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow them to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Just now, I think a pastor and his family is bounding down the Colorado River in, I suppose, Arizona. So this morning, we have the privilege of having our district uh, superintendent, Neil Brower, speak to us. And so here he is. Well, it's good to be back with you again and uh, to enjoy these kinds of times together. Let me just make one more check. Yep, I'm on. Okay. Um, again, from the Western District of the Evangelical Free Church, we are, are grateful to have you as a part of our family and um, want to be here to serve in any way we can. And uh, so it's, it's, it's good to be able to do that. I, I've been keeping up. I'm on, the mail, I'm on Adam and Libby's um, mailing list, by the way, so I've been keeping up with them. And sounds like a lot of things are developing there and going good in most areas, right? And, and I guess um, Libby and Zoe are coming to visit. So that'll be fun, and um, it happens to be on my 40th wedding anniversary, August 13th, when they're going to be here. So, uh, in any case, that'll be that'll be fun too to maybe even get to see them for a minute. But um, uh, why on my anniversary, you ask? It's another story. So never, I'll let you know sometime. So we um, we just have a continuing desire to um, promote and to encourage and to kind of create an atmosphere. And in fact. If there's a singular prayer that I have for you and for all of uh, the churches that make up the Western District, now 55 or so churches, it would be that you would see yourselves as bridges to a world that is actually perishing and people that don't know Jesus yet, and that you would have an incredible experience here in your area of, of making connections with people so that if and when Jesus chooses to save, you can be there for that cool event. Um, for that process, for that, that journey of life, and that you could journey with people in that way. Today's passage is really all about that, surprisingly, perhaps. It's a familiar one. And so I want to make sure that we have a sense of it, but I might take you off onto a little slightly different, different angle for it. Um, but, but if only all of our churches would actually enter into their everyday, daily experience and existence in life, with that kind of thing in mind, if all of us would join in together, recognizing that each one of us is a, is a priest, as a believer, we're priests, um, I just, I can only imagine what could take place in our lives, um, in our communities, and it thrills me to think of it. So, in any case, um, we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, but before we do that, I'd like to pray so that we can get our, our thoughts and our hearts in the right place to be hearing our Savior this morning. Father, we come to you as our Father. Um, we call no one else Father. And uh, we are grateful that you have made us your children through the power of Jesus' name, through the shed blood and the resurrection of Jesus. We acknowledge today that he has ascended and he has sat down, that he is coming again. And uh, we look forward to that day and ask, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Would you please come quickly? And in the meantime, Father, thank you for the privilege of our next breath with you. Thanks for the honor and the joy and um, the, the beauty of what it means to, to be your representatives, your ambassadors for the gospel here. And I pray that we might represent you, Father, in all of our unredeemed, fleshy brokenness, that still we would represent the heart of our gracious Jesus everywhere we go. And if that could be true, then, Lord, we might build bridges to those that don't know you yet. 
and we might actually experience and see many coming to faith in Christ. This is our prayer in these days. And until you come again or call us home. So we love you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've become friends, right? Is that too much? Is that going too far? Um, I, I, think, I feel like I've been with you enough times now over, over the years since I came about four, a little over four years ago now that I can just sort of let down my guard and speak my heart, right? As if I was ever hesitant to do that any other time. I'd, I'd just like to say that when your pastor assigned me this particular text, I thought it was some kind of a pastoral practical joke. You know, he goes away, and so as a prank, he gives me the hard one, right? Um, so anyway, the fig tree passage, right, which is very weird. Um, so then I surrendered to that idea um, because my heart to serve my pastors is so pure, right? I, I surrendered to that idea, and I said, okay, whatever, Mike. Um, yeah, on the one hand, you've got to be kidding, and then on the other hand, I know God has something going on here. So when I made that surrender, I made two discoveries as I was opening the passage and really asking God to, to speak through me, to enlighten me, and so forth. Number one, I don't, I don't really have to preach the fig tree part <laughs> because the conclusion of that comes in the next section, and so I'm going to go ahead and let him deal with that. Okay, how's that, right? Because I can just leave town and we'll leave it with him. But number two, no matter what is presented to us in Scripture, God's Word is always rich when we let it speak to our hearts. And so my prayer today is that, in fact, we would be open and let God's Word speak to our hearts in whatever way we might choose, and that you all would have discernment when I'm speaking and when he's speaking. If I'm speaking on his behalf, what a, what a crazy idea that is anyway, um, but when we, when we let the Scripture speak for themselves, perhaps... Um, Perhaps it's a good thing. I think maybe um, that an awful lot of our traditions have, have spoken more loudly than even the Word of God. Even with good intentions, that's been true for us. So what I want to do is invite you to follow along with me as I walk us through this very personal journey of Jesus in the world. It's a very personal accounting of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have the privilege, I think, of peeking not only into a moment of history, but into the very deepest reaches of the heart of our Savior, it's going to concern his emotions and his motivations, his humanness in a very real way. It's all right here in Mark 11, 12 to 19. So direct your attention there, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I can't help but just think, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Right? In that, in that moment right there, because, in fact, little ears are listening, right? Was this the true humanity of Jesus being revealed in a somewhat petulant, aggravated impatience? Is that what we're seeing here? The impatience of the human Jesus? I wonder, does the theology of the sinlessness of the life of Christ also require that he have no weakness of character? No sin, certainly. Cursing a tree isn't a sin, right? Or has somehow the idea that he is sinless, fully and completely living as a human but without sin... Does that mean that he never feels or expresses emotions? We, I, I think we don't run in that circle, do we, much? And the perfection of Jesus is something that we've kind of crafted into something that, that maybe wasn't quite real. Our whole passage today, at the most human level, is a look into the emotional humanness of our Savior. Frustration, then outright anger. We haven't even gotten to that part yet. Right? I eventually began to question the legend or the mythology around Jesus born in Bethlehem over the years as I sang the carols, right? Um, you know the one I'm talking about, the carols, certainly. We have, we have one that says, No crying he made, makes, whatever the words are, right? That the baby Jesus never cried sort of came out of that whole thing. Well, why wouldn't he cry? He's a baby, right? 
what I'm getting at here, I hope you can see, is that there's this traditional, almost legend, theology, mythology blend of things that probably just isn't real. And it's not necessary to be faithful to the Scriptures and to be honoring to the exalted Savior and Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the only one, risen and coming again, right? It's not necessary. So I wonder why we do that. Um, what is what is not interesting in all of this in terms of how our, it's interesting how our minds work through this kind of thing and so forth. What's, what's not interesting, what's actually disturbing is that it can actually misshape our definition of what it means to be a follower of the risen Christ. His plan was to create us in his own image, but to celebrate the human aspects of that freely. And maybe there's less freedom in our religious ways. Jesus in his life and death and resurrection was never afraid of our brokenness, even our sinfulness. We spoke of it before the quote was made. The only thing we've added to the whole process of salvation is our sin. Yeah, he knew that. That's why he came. Not intimidated by it. Came, in fact, to deal with it, to provide for it. Fascinating. So that's not just, he, he has overcome our sinfulness, and that's not just a heavenly thing, but it's a very earthly thing as well. It's an overcoming of sin on a daily basis kind of a thing as well. So the image of God is encased in a very earthy and as yet unredeemed body. That's true in our case. It was also true in the case of Jesus Christ at that moment, right? An earthy body. Christian culture has used a very enculturated set of behaviors to define holiness. That's kind of what I'm getting at and maybe even attacking a little bit this morning in this kind of introductory way to sort of set the stage here for what he's going to do when he arrives at the temple in the city. Um, what we've thought of as Christian maturity has often been measured by behaviors that you, and, and mostly by behaviors you don't do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't, right? Don't associate with people who do those things. And that's been somehow attached to a measure of Christian maturity. We've asked, what would Jesus do? If anybody's wearing the bracelet, forgive me, right now. And then avoided passages like the one that's before us here. The answer, according to our passage today, to the now familiar WWJD question, right, is this. Jesus would get hungry, frustrated, and a bit petty to the point of cursing. Anybody getting nervous yet? I, I'm a little nervous, okay? Yeah? Are you nervous about this? But it sure does appear that that's exactly what happened. Then he would get angry and even violent when running head into the direct violation of the entire reason, by the way, that he took on bodily form to live among us. That's when he gets to the temple. We'll get there in a second. Frustration, cursing, anger, verbal violence, physical violence against property. That's what we have in front of us in this passage of Scripture. Let's not water that down. That's what's sitting right there on the page. We read it. Yikes. Does that create crisis for anyone? I think maybe it should. I hope by the time we're done, it's going to create some freedom and some excitement about the true nature of the gospel and how it meets with people who live this way, frustrated, cursing, angry, and within the context of violence in their life. The gospel and Jesus himself speaks to those things. And in fact, Jesus lived out what it means to feel and deal with those things. Fascinating. So I hope you're fascinated a little bit by this more naked look at the sinless Son of God and take the nervousness about my edging toward blasphemy here and pray for me, okay, as we go. Let's pray for ourselves. But let me be the first to say that I don't understand much of what and why God includes some things in the Scriptures He preserves for our understanding, right, and other things He doesn't include and He doesn't necessarily explain them in, in perfect thoroughness, but it'll be fun to get to those answers someday. For now, it remains a mystery, but I think it is beneficial for us to identify what matters most, and I think that's the point of this section of Scripture. We'll come back to that as we progress this morning. Just perhaps this is the definitive passage revealing what theologians call the hypostatic union. Some of you know what that is. It's the idea, the theology, that Jesus embodied 100% humanity and 100% divinity. And how that doesn't equal 200% but equals 100% is the fascinating, miraculous dynamic of that. It sets him apart from all other humans, right? 
and it sets the biblical faith apart from every other humanly derived, generated religion, doesn't it? Hypostatic union. So in this one person, Jesus the Nazarene, we have embodied 100% humanity, 100% divinity. We're all way more comfortable with the divinity parts. And we're not sure that the humanity part is maybe more like 60%, not 100%. And what we have before us today is kind of 100%. It's like going all the way up. And he's showing just how human humanness can be. So he's the only one to have ever lived and to be fully God and fully man. That this story is placed before his cleansing of the temple, I think, is purposeful. But, but maybe not immediately obvious. In fact, we who study it might be guilty of over-speculating as to the placement of the story and its purpose. So let's keep reading and again uh, gain the advantage of understanding the context. So now I'm at verse 15, if you're following along. Then they came to Jerusalem. After this whole fig tree incident, right? No explanations, just there it was, and his disciples were listening and watching and hearing. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, by the way, in case you wondered why the words are different. Here's my take on this passage, overview, introductory overview here, theologically. Here's my take theologically. Jesus' words, may this fig tree never bear again, ties in here. Here's how. It's as if he was saying, may this fig tree wither, rot, die, and never bear its rotten fruit again. All of that being symbolic for, may this religious leadership never influence another human being again. So as you observe his behavior in the temple, the fig tree set it up for his disciples. Okay? May religion and the manipulation of human leaders over humankind in the name of God die forever. Does it grieve anyone else how Jesus' name gets thrown around and uh, placed and labeled over and used somehow? And yet it's a horrific representation of the heart of Jesus, right? That's what he ran into, Jesus, when he came into the temple that day. In the name of God, they were doing all kinds of things that were only bringing death to the people that were attempting to follow all the rules that they'd established. We're edging closer to defining what matters most here now. There was an authority being demonstrated here, first of all, by his power over nature and the fig tree. Maybe the disciples caught onto that that day. Maybe they didn't. Remember, they did when he calmed the storms, when he spoke to the wind, right? Power, authority over nature. If Jesus has sway over nature, then he has the authority to speak into the detrimental effects of religious institutions. That's the point, and that's what's happening here. So, so he does this fig tree thing. They walk on. They're presented with this fiasco in the temple, which is actually harming people's ability to find God, to worship God, and he, he goes off. And they were set up for that. Now, if he confronts the established power, there will be fallout, won't there? Those in power would seek to destroy him, our passage said. And again, we'll come back to it. But those under that power, those suffering underneath that power, how would they respond to these things that Jesus did? Okay, They would feel freedom and release in his message, right? Liberation. It is the gospel, isn't it? Heal the sick. Raise up the lowly. Free the prisoner. Bring justice to the oppressed. Life instead of death for all people. And so he would bring a beautiful message to them. So there was a couple of different reactions going on, certainly, even though it's only one of them. Well, they're both recorded in some kind of interesting words. We'll, we'll come back to it. When Jesus saw those the Father had intended to be good shepherds of his people, that would be the priestly caste, right? neglecting their calling in favor of some other self-serving actions, he felt, first of all, he felt very deeply about it. 
right? His passions were stirred, and then they were revealed. And then he acted on them, didn't he? So I have a a take theologically, that is that those two stories fit together, but then here's my take practically speaking. It begs the question of us, doesn't it? What really gets me going? What really riles my passions? Now, we're all good church-going folk. You even came here on a summer Sunday when you could have been a bunch of other places. And so we attend church, and we respect and love God, and we worship Him, and we're relying on Jesus Christ and His, His, His resurrection for our resurrection life in the future. That's who we are. But just sometimes our passions have been tamped down, hidden away. What is it that riles us? What gets our blood boiling? When it comes to things that matter, things that last forever, and how much more of our life as we walk with Jesus do we do so closer to yawning as opposed to getting really emotional? Are you with me here? Now am I getting too close to home on a personal level? It, it's it's the, the beauty and the danger of growing up Christian, isn't it? Yeah, and we know about that. And we watch a younger generation growing up and wonder, are they going to step away from us too, kind of like, just like I did and my generation did? Or are they going to you know, cross the bridge and make it all the way to the end? And, and it could be these passions things that, that, really, that really makes the difference. So I want you to feel this scene a little bit. I want you to imagine yourself in Jesus' shoes. Um, I would never, ever in a million years do what Jesus did, just to let you know. It's just downright impolite. And I, I, I got way more sense of, you know, people's violating people's space and, you know, doing the polite thing and the respectful thing as opposed to the craziness of this, right? That, that's what we've got here, truthfully. So he enters the temple. He begins to drive out those abusing it for their own purposes. That's really what's going on here. So words like drive out, overturn, and the restricting of traffic, trafficking in merchandise, right? That, that's all going on here. One man did this in this teeming large area where, where commerce was going on. Oh, and worship. And commerce was going on, right? Right there on the, in this place that they called the house of the Lord. So stop there now and imagine again with me the emotions of that scene. There was part of me that wanted to do some kind of a dramatic effect where I would actually start raging and yelling and screaming up here on the platform and whatnot, and that would have just been way too fabricated. So, so I opted out of that. But, but bring yourself to that place and try to imagine the people. Pick any one of the individuals in the story and put yourself there and imagine how this might feel from awkward to frightening to who knows what. So here's Jesus in this scene now. It's over with, right? Jesus is now breathing hard, Right? There's sweat dripping off of his forehead, isn't there? I mean, think about what he's done here, right? Um, His disciples are sort of like backing off around the edges a little bit, kind of thinking, where'd this come from? What? I don't know for sure what they're thinking, right? How can we know that? But wondering, right? I mean, their eyes are as big as saucers. Their jaws are gaping wide. Their chins are hitting the floor. The poor citizens of the city who were just there to buy a dove and worship God that day like the law required, I mean, what are they thinking? And that's the, that's the vast majority. That's the crowd that's in the room, right? And they're kind of going, what did I walk into today? I thought I'd just kind of be in and out and get about my business, you know, on the Sabbath. This maniac storms through, and I just, I, you know, this is... <laughs> When I think about updating the story to today and having something happen like this today, I, I just want to imagine the press on this, the, the Twitter storm, right, the media reaction. I, I just imagine in that moment, imagine all the phones that would be coming out. And, and sure, all of the cameras on and recording, right? And then, of course, all the posts that would go viral. Because this is a big deal. This, this Jesus, this one who claims to be God, who does miracles, who's gathering crowds, who's claiming things that we've never heard before, who, who's attacking our religious system. So he's standing there, and silence falls, right? That lull after the storm, right? That, that's what happens now, um, right there throughout the temple. Everyone is wondering who will act next, who will speak next, what is the right thing to do next. 
Jesus takes advantage of this moment to teach those now aware and alert. Are you there with me? Are you picturing this with me? This gathered crowd, this this crowd that's got sprinkled within it, these so-called shepherds, the priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the lawyers, right? So he takes a moment to teach, right? And this teaching takes on two forms, confrontation and then redirection. In his confrontation, he says, you have made my house into a den. You have made it into a place of thievery. An abusive, deceiving, power-mongering, unholy thing. You have done. A place that no longer invites all peoples into relationship with their creator. A place that blocks genuine worship and love and even salvation for all nations. And so he confronts, see? He confronts the circumstances and then he confronts the meaning of the circumstances, doesn't he? And then after the confrontation, he does some redirection. He says, my house is for a defined purpose. It's a house of prayer. And it's for all the nations. Right? Very very concise, very specific, very clear, isn't it? And then what happened? What happened next after that? How did everyone react? Who cleaned up? <laughs> we were told that later that evening they left the city, but what happened now? How, how, did people respond? I mean, was there an altar call involved? You know, what, who, did Jesus and his disciples hang around and help pick up stuff and, you know, gather the coins? I mean, what, good Christians would do that, wouldn't they? Like, that might be what I would have done if I was one of the disciples. Oh, let's, are you okay? You know, clean up. Can this get, how can we get human in, into this? I wonder while they were doing the cleanup work, what they were thinking. We have two reactions that are recorded for us. First of all, those he confronted dug in and began to plan his destruction, right? They dug in. They did not hear the confrontation. They did not receive the confrontation. They did not take responsibility for their systematic throwing up of walls to the people for preaching a false gospel, if you will, but only their system. So, so that, that, that's the first reaction recorded. The second reaction we have is those that he invited into a pure and hopeful and loving connection to the one true and living God, right? We, we got their reactions. They were astonished at his teaching. That is, they were amazed that they'd never heard this invitation before, and they were deeply encouraged by it. And isn't that fascinating, how you can be in the house of God your entire life and never have felt the invitation of, of holy, almighty God, and yet just have a relationship with him based on law, ritual, and finance. Fascinating. So the good news was being silenced. The shepherds of the people were abusing the sheep. The symbolic hope of the presence and power of God in the temple, right? It it was a symbol of those things. The temple building was itself. All of that was being compromised. The institution had become self-serving. It had become confining and controlling of the very people it was actually just there to serve. Uh, The temple was now a burdensome thing. Right? It's leaders demanding and condescending. It's rules designed to control rather than to give life. It's not the, the point of the temple. Man was not made for Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, Jesus said on another occasion, didn't he? So when the law is used to create fear and hopelessness, we have a problem. When worship practices are barred from the people who would come to worship, we have a problem. When it's made too expensive to afford to worship God for all people, we have issues. Okay, the shepherds have been unfaithful. When a priestly caste is found oppressing a common class of their own making, right, we have to let go of the heart of God and replace it with some other humanly devised thing. So to put a point on it, and now here's what's in your outline for you there, the little checklist, um, if you're following along there at all, the values chief priests and scribes promoted were these, power. That is, they were gatekeepers to the presence and blessing of God. They valued power. They valued control. That is, control of the less educated, which has always been true and never more true than even today. Education is held up as that which affords you the right to speak, to have an opinion 
and to state that opinion, to have a place in life, right, to fit in somewhere, power, control, and thirdly, profit, money made by the selling of indulgences, which wasn't called indulgences until later on in history, (laughs) but it was the same thing back then. Same thing. Pay the price. We have the goods. You need our goods. You got to pay us to get them so that you can have uh, the presence of God. It's tragic. The values of the chief priests and scribes. Now, here are the values of Jesus, right? Did you, did you notice them along the way? Access to God, a place for all the nations, and a prayer focus. How simple, how clear, how clean, how perfect, how good is that? Right? And any of the human trappings, whether it's buildings or servants or, or structures or teachings or ordinances or whatever they might be, all of it serves those values, access to God, a place for all the nations, a prayer focus. If any of those things, buildings and, 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 and a, you know, a cast of shepherding caregivers or any of the rules or regs that we put in place in order to be religious or whatever, if that, any of that ever gets in the way then they need to be set aside, not institutionalized, but in fact abandoned, so as to bring about Jesus' values, access to God, a place for all the nations, and a prayer focus. And that's what Jesus called for right here in this passage. So then, let's keep this really simple if we can and and, and get really practical about this. Number one, it's on your outline too. Organized religion must take care not to degenerate into self-service. Um, I wrote it this way, too. Organized religion must take care not to limit access to God. Which happens when it degenerates into self-service. I'm scared of this in my role. So I pastored churches for 28 years. And there's a certain aspect of my role that I knew came up every single Sunday. And about Friday night, I started getting sick to my stomach. I would need to prove myself on Sunday morning that I'm actually valuable enough for them to keep paying me so they'd have me back the next Sunday. There's this weird unspoken rule about preachers, and then there's a system that's created around that of expectations that are just, they're kind of crazy if you just sift it all through. And so we who have been preachers for a living deal with that every weekend. And every weekend, of course, the sermon that I preached this weekend has to beat the one I preached last weekend. Be just a little better for some reason, a little funnier, a little more insightful, a little more convicting, a little more practical, for some reason... It's got to really hit home, right? Fascinating. And in that process, we succumb to some of these kinds of things where we're now working not for the sake of Jesus and exalting him only, but, but institutions by their very nature and for their very survival exact great costs from their members. Job security for some of us is on the line. The employed leaders means that we have to promote the idea that we are indispensable to this process. Is this me? Like, can I say this as a denominational leader? Because I've got 55 pastors that I'm, I want to care for, respect, honor, make room for them. I want you to fall in love with Mike and to just give him sway in your life, right? But in some ways, we all are just guys, okay, who are taking our turn in an attempt to be faithful to what we sense God wants us to do, but our calling is no greater than yours. See, now there's where the rubber meets the road. We've decided that people like us who stand on platforms like this are more called, uniquely called. And all I'm really doing is exercising one of the gifts. And God gives those out as he wills. And no gift is more important than another. In fact, the ones that are considered by us to be less important, are actually more important. I mean, this is all Bible, right? This is all 1 Corinthians. Fascinating, isn't it? What have we done? What have we done? What have we done? What have we done? Let's be careful of the institution and be willing to face it and confess it, because I think the result of it is that all of us rise up to operate in our giftedness for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel, and it'll be way more effective than if you just have the platform people doing it. That's really what I'm after here. So we cultivate this uh, guilt-driven expectation for our members so that members keep coming back for absolution and for grace, right? And we have that power as clergy. We, we cultivate the idea that holiness can only be 
found within our walls, right? And, and you are spending the other six days each of each week getting dirty and earthly and, 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 and wasting your time and your efforts and your interests there until finally you get back here on Sunday and now you're doing the truly sanctified stuff. It's a, it's a misunderstanding and a miscommunication because your work is your worship. And that's biblical as well. So before we dismiss ourselves from any responsibility for this trend, let's confess that our emphasis in the 21st century Western evangelical church today can be quite similar to this plot line that I've given here for these people in the temple that I've said organized religion must take care not to limit access to God, not to degenerate into self-service, right? And, 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 and j- just to kind of step on your toes a little bit more while I have you, um, you have expectations as members, don't you? Um, and churches have been known to chew up and spit out pastors who didn't meet those expectations. That's very real. Because okay, you come with expectations and measuring sticks and bars and hoops to jump through for your leadership. And then there's this whole consumeristic programming decision-making thing that goes on with us in today's church. Very consumeristic. Does it meet my needs? If it doesn't meet my needs, then I'll go to somewhere where it does meet my needs. It's not about your needs being met, friends. It's about Jesus and exalting him. That's what it's about. And it's about us emptying ourselves like Jesus did. He emptied himself. It's about laying our life down for a friend because greater love has no one than that. That's what it's about. And the consumeristic thing that we've made it, again, I think, limits access to God and degenerates into self-service, and we've got to be careful and receive whatever responsibility is ours. So that's number one. Number two, the way of Jesus opens wide the pathway to access to God and his grace. That's the way of Jesus. Open it wide. Access to God. He removes the humanly devised restrictions so often created. Now, the narrow gate that he spoke of in other passages is very real, but it all has to do with this idea that it's it's him, Jesus only, right? And it can't be us, and it can't be other systems that we create, and I have nothing to offer toward it. And it's very difficult for us to surrender. Believe me, this is the one thing about living where I live, and that is that, that my friends, the one common trait they all have is an unwillingness to surrender to someone else as master in their life. That's the catch point. And so salvation becomes a willing surrender of control, surrender of heart. Even if it's a process journey thing, it's just that willingness to say, yeah, I'll, I'll follow someone else because we are masters of our own destiny. So he removes the humanly devised restrictions that's, that, that are so often created, those that we settle on to measure the health and maturity of our membership today, really today in our today's church. Maybe, maybe you've noticed it, maybe you haven't. Um, but, but we've made it about attending, learning, serving, and giving. Here, in the building, right? In the organized parts of who we are. If these are sufficiently apparent in your life, then we in church leadership will assign value to you. At your funeral, we will proclaim that you were a faithful follower of Christ if you did those four things. It's a grid. We're all pressed through it. Jesus comes and he strips away all that because that's all they were doing in the temple that day. They were just following the rules that were set up for them to follow, right? And he strips away all of it and his angry actions overturned the limiting structures of that day's religious institution and I wonder how he might overturn ours today. That, that's kind of where this comes to for, for on a very practical level. It, it could upset a lot of things, I suppose. The point is that Jesus opens wide the pathway. All nations may come. And not on the basis of humanly devised um, methods and restrictions and hoops to jump through. The temple is the symbol of that, by the way. The temple was constructed by divine design to invite the nations to authentic, life-giving relationship with Almighty God. Number three, again, it's on your outline, Jesus raged against the religious establishment. Raged! He raged! Let's not forget that. The emotion of this is highly instructive, I think, so we're back to our question again. What do we really care about? What boils our blood? I've seen more of this kind of righteous indignation over politics in the last two years than I've ever seen over the fact that people are perishing. They're actually going to hell. People we know and work with and play with and live around every day, and we don't rage over the fact that perhaps our religious institutional stuff is keeping them from Jesus. No, we rage about politics. How about we grieve less about fake news 
and grieve more about people whose souls hang in the balance. I think we've got to take that one home and think it through. Really do think that. Because we're called out to something larger and greater and bigger and more awesome, more eternal, right? Are we truly energized at a gut level when we see people perishing because of their misunderstanding of true and amazing grace? Amazing grace. It is amazing, isn't it? Is our anger focused on the immoral behavior of people that translates into separating them? Separating from them, I mean? Like pulling back from them? And and then, of course, our passions go about legislative action, as if passing a law in Washington will actually solve something in any kind of a long-term way without ever being overturned when the next set of people are elected. We're old enough to have seen this happen so many times. Why do we keep trusting in it and fighting for it? Fascinating. Especially when we're armed with the gospel of grace. Or does our anger result in the removal, the overturning of the tables of false gospel witness? Hmm. Where is our passion lying? What do we rage against? For Jesus removed all barriers to the marginalized and sinner. His violent actions are so instructive for us today. He He threw chairs and tables, man. Coins were flying all over the stone floors of the building. I mean, look at it again. Think of it. Clerks and priests were falling down and backing away to get out of his way. He was cleansing Jerusalem of anyone who would create a barrier to any person, and especially those least deserving of God's love, and opening wide the pathway for them to come. Wildly invited, beautifully invited. He was a living, fire-breathing demonstration of the wildly inviting nature of grace. It's a beautiful thing. So now let's bring this as close to home as we possibly can, because we've been dealing with the image of the temple as we wrap up right now, and Jesus said, my house will be, right? But what is this house today? It's not the temple, is it? The symbolism of the temple in Jesus' day quickly gave way to that which it symbolized, a real temple, didn't it? Peter and Paul both took off from Jesus' teaching on this and and had something to say later. It would would seem that they got the message. It's informative for understanding of the point of this passage. So 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10 are instructive. Peter said, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, speaking to the believers, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're the house, aren't we? We are the house now. So skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And there's the message of the gospel, isn't it? Come receive mercy! Come receive mercy to all who need mercy. So Peter is here saying that we are God's house. And then he more specifically defines what that means. His people, priests, those having received mercy rather than deserved rejection. Priests, right? Bridges. I think we've talked about this before when I've been here before. Synonymous terms. A priest is a bridge. A bridge is a priest. We're bridges. A house with no moat or at least the drawbridge is always down, right? A house. But we'll see in a minute, not a stationary house at all. Then Paul takes it a step further, getting very practical concerning the full function of those who are this house, this temple, the physical representation of the purpose of inviting in those who are currently outside the temple of God, which represents oneness with God, right? They came to the temple to be one with God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And we've taken that verse, and we've thought, okay, that means don't sin with your body, because that will destroy it. When in reality, in this context, this larger teaching of Jesus and his theology, it would mean, be the temple and what it's supposed to be. And that is an invitation to all the nations to come and pray with their creator. Don't let that be destroyed, is actually the message here. Following that? Then 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And we've taken that to mean don't sin. Don't do bad stuff. And that's how we've applied that almost universally for generations. When in reality he's saying glorify God, that is shed light on the creator of the universe and his accessibility to all people in your body. Let your life so shine before men, right? They will be drawn to the Savior through your life. It's not even about whether you're sinning at the moment or not. In fact, sometimes maybe it's our brokenness and our sin that actually bridges the gap between broken sinners and holy God. Where we found grace, they too can find grace. That's the beauty of our message. So here's the truth. I'm here to give all people easy access to God. We are the house of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We exist as a living invitation for people to come in and know God, be with God, receive love from God, and give love to God. And by the way, if you don't go away with anything else today but this one thing, it could change our lives forever. Don't you for one moment think that, think that this means inviting people into this room as if this is now the temple. Oh my goodness. It is how we think, isn't it? Okay, so I exist to invite people to come to Sunday morning worship at the house of God. And it's unbiblical in that thinking, isn't it? In fact, really ought to think of ourselves, we ought to think of ourselves as mobile homes. Okay? And not up on blocks and not with a skirt around it, still on wheels. Mobile homes, that's who we are. We're houses mobile and moving into where people are and living amongst them at all times, our very lives being the embodiment of an invitation to know God in a very, very personal way. We're the house of God, and our main purpose is prayer. The main purpose for the house is prayer. That is for intimate and real communication between God and humankind. Wow, wow. This is so good. The main audience invited into life with their creator, according to an irate Jesus in Jerusalem that day, is the nations. That's the audience. So everyone who comes across our pathway, that's our audience. And I'm here to give all people easy access to God. So then, as my sermon title says, anger for the right thing is a good thing. So I run about five days a week around the city, praying while I'm running, right? And this week I took a slightly different turn, and I ran all the way from our house down to the Transamerica building. You know, the pyramid thing? You know, the really kind of iconic cityscape of San Francisco? And it took me past one of the old cathedral-like buildings that were built way back in another century of a church. And I don't even remember what the denomination was, to be honest. Slapped around the whole church was banners, you know, new banners of every kind, displaying what they believed, and, you know, not in, not in exact terms, but in obvious terms about, about, about what, what it means to be a part of this particular church. And, and so I'm, I'm running there, and I, I just had to stop and read and contemplate, and, um, and, and, and I got the message very clearly. Clearly, their, their newly formed main mission statement came through over all other things that it might represent. And this is what it said, everyone is welcome here. Dot, 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 really. Does that fascinate you or is just my brain think in weird ways, down strange pathways? Really. In the evolution of what it means to be a welcoming church, which we've all taught ourselves to be, right? Has it come to this? We understand, I think, don't we? So much so that it gives us pause, I think. Is the world, and churches for that matter, who may not even believe the Bible to be true and authoritative anymore? Nor do they preach a faithful gospel, perhaps? I'm not sure. Have a better understanding and manner when it comes to the invitational heart of Jesus than we do? who have the truth, who will love in pure ways when people arrive, when we're in connection with people. Sorry for using language about them coming here. Didn't mean to do that. See, happens to me too. We've redefined what it means in today's culture to uphold truth that we've actually got it very, very wrong when it comes to grace, I think. 
And of course, we know that when Jesus came, the very best description of him in John chapter 1 was, we beheld him full of grace and truth. And I preached that sermon too. And I kind of preach it like it's one word. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. It's one word. You can't have one without the other. One defines the other. Don't split them out and say, oh, we're going to do this now, and then we're going to do that. You know, we're good at grace, we're not so good with truth, or we're really good at truth, not so good at grace, and I hear whole denominations described that way. No, it's grace and truth. <clears throat> Truly welcoming. And any who proved less than welcoming made Jesus flat out mad. <laughs> Those whose version of religious faith actually set up blockades to people's honest pursuit of God and raged him righteously. More than any of the sinful behavior that his culture presented to him every single day, he walked around it all the time, sidled up to them, made some of them his best friends, didn't he? The sinful ones. Crazy. So where does that leave us? With a dead fig tree. I want you to bow your heads with me, and I want you to think, and I want you to open yourself up, and I want you to evaluate and contemplate. What is it, God, that you would have us do with these extreme words and example behaviors of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our esteemed one, the risen one. How would you have us come to you? What sins now, I know it's not that part of the service, but what sins now would we be willing to confess out of the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit? Make us into your house. Make us into your priests, for that is what we are. And Father, would you use us to be that thrown wide open door that gives people that we meet access to our Savior and to life in him, please, everywhere we go. So be thinking even now, my friends, of those people that you see virtually every day who don't know him yet. Contemplate what your attitude toward them has been. Contemplate whether you have served as a bridge or as a shut door. Is the cost too high? Are you exacting too high a price for their entrance into relationship with God? Or will you take them as they are, even as Jesus took you? So, Father, we give you thanks today for the love and grace that we have known from you. And we exalt you, Jesus, in your humanness and divinity, you alone, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so, Father, move our hearts for the sake of those who have misunderstood the message for a variety of reasons. And may we be, may we be ones who clarify the message. Love first. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.